So what we don't want to do is turn people like a refrigerator when we're when we're when we're trying to reestablish movement. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. This is going to be a busy week. The intense 14 uh, starts this week. It's actually on Thursday. So I'm looking forward to that. So let's dig right into today's Q&A. Um, this is with uh, Charlie. Charlie's fairly new. I saw him sneaking in on one of the coffee and coaches conference calls last week. Um, so he's had a few exposures and he's figuring some stuff out on his own, which is great. But he asked some really good foundational questions in, in this Q&A that I think a lot of people are going to benefit from. We touched on foundational archetypes. We touched on right oblique orientation, um, dirty measures on the table. So we talked a little bit about that, about how these things can change using the table as your constraint and, and point of reference. So very important call, probably for a lot of people. Um, I think you'll benefit. If you'd like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consultation in the subject line, and please include your question in the email, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Monday. Happy Intensive Week, and I'll see you tomorrow. All right, Charlie. Uh, we got the video rolling. Clock has started. What is your question? Um, so, um, Bill, I don't know if you have that chessboard that I emailed through. I do. I do. And I'll put it up here on the video for everybody to see. Okay. okay. Um, I was wondering if I could just go through what my interpretations was and you could maybe guide me and see if I was on the right track. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. Um, so it's just starting off, got a wide infrasternal angle. So it's on with a exhaled axial skeleton and bias with, um, uh, reductions in flexion, abduction, and ER across the across the limbs. Um, so, see in the pelvis, we've got a restriction in internal rotation as well. Um, yep. Think, understand the common compensation we have is a concentric concentric orientation of the um, posterior lower um, musculature at the at the pelvis. Um, uh, that's how I understand that. Um, so that would actually limit that. That's going to limit the early flexion measures. Okay. That's, mm -hmm. um, that it's, it's actually representative uh, of a, um, the, the posterior lower compression limits, limits the ER and the flexion in front of you. Okay. So okay. It, moves, it moves external rotation from in front of you out to the side. That's what that's what that posterior lower represents. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So you're getting more ER space and you're using up the it's IR space there. that you have. It's out there. It's like, it's actually less ER space. So, so you don't have any ER space in front of you. It's moved out to the side. So it's moved away from midline. That's what you okay. want, to, want to understand about that. It's the anterior compressive strategy that's going to limit the internal rotation. Okay, so, so what it's showing you is that you've got a tremendous amount of, of A to P. So when you get that posterior lower compressive strategy, the thing that happened just prior to that is the anterior compressive strategy, okay? That's why we talk about these, these things in, in a little bit of a sequence because it allows us to see how these superficial strategies are layered upon um, the, the uh, axial skeleton, okay? Mm -hmm. 
So mm-hmm. don't misrepresent what, what they're showing you. Okay. Yep. When you yep. have post, so when you have posterior lower compressive strategy, okay, you, you lose early traditional hip flexion. If we, if we want to call it that you're going to lose, um, uh, the straight leg raise is going to be limited. And then you're going to lose IR, not because of the posterior compressive strategy, but because of what just happened prior to that, which would be the anterior compression. Okay. Just okay. so you understand. Okay. There's a sequence of events that those things represent, but it tells us where you are in space. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the important thing. Okay. Okay. So um, is that an extra s- step between the, um, the inhalation bias um, strategy that comes with the exhalation bias on the, from it's the not extra, it's just, it's just part of the, the, the sequential layering of superficial strategies on top of the axial skeleton. Okay. There's, okay. there's a, a, there's a typical representation of the archetypes. Okay. And I think you understand that what you have to understand is that, is that the superficial strategies are going to appear in a, in a relative specific sequence of events based on where your center of gravity is over your feet. Okay. When you see posterior lower compression, so your early flexion measures, if you look at the chessboard, the early flexion measures are very limited. So your hip flexion is limited. Your straight leg raise is limited. So right away you go, "Uh Oh, we got a posterior lower compressive strategy. If you have a posterior lower compressive strategy, you have all the other superficial strategies in play already because the last one to get layered on is posterior lower. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so that's what I want you to understand about this. Okay. Your, your, your assumption. So in, in your email, your assumption that, that, um, this chessboard represents a right oblique representation is correct. So this is this is somebody that's tipping on a much more oblique axis as they are turning. Okay, and your and that would be represented by your ER measures. Okay, mm-hmm. so so when you see the deficit of ER on the right side greater than the left side, you can make the assumption that you're on the right oblique. When you see the limitation of straight leg raise and early hip flexion, that means you're pushed forward. Okay. okay. So that tipped on the right oblique first. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tipped on the right oblique first and then got pushed farther forward. So the center of gravity is way over to the right and way forward. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, is that, that oblique axis shifts something that, um, that comes really early in the progression for, for a wide ISA? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. Um, so one thing that I've been struggling to understand is the increase of ER at the, um, at the shoulder. Um, is that, um, from just my research this afternoon, just going through videos, um, I got a clue that could have been, uh, the, anterior compressive strategy pulling the sternum down which okay, could... that would, so that would that would be a restriction of internal rotation of the shoulder if yep. the sternum is pushed down do this for me put your arm up in like a like a a 90 degree angle there there you go perfect now don't change the shoulder orientation just bend backwards did your hand go back too um yeah yeah does it, so does that make it look like there's more external rotation? 
Yep. Yep. Okay. Was it more external rotation in the shoulder? Not relative. No. No, that is correct. Okay. Yeah. So so when you see a magnification, so so your 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 ERs match. Yeah. Okay. In your shoulder and your hip, which means that that you should know already before you even measure somebody. It's like, I know that, that unless there's a constraint problem, like if, if you tore a labrum or something like that, then that, that changes the rules a little bit because the constraints have changed. But when you're measuring somebody, if you, if you measure an ER, you should have a, this, a similar limitation in ER in the ipsilateral extremity. Okay. But, but it looks like you don't, it looks like, wow, we've got a lot, especially on the one side, it looks like, wow, we've got a lot of ER, don't we? But the reality is, is that if you're anteriorly oriented and I lay you on a table, so the table becomes a constraint. So if you lay on the table and then you roll backwards on the table, as many people do, okay, you don't see the restriction of ER in the table measure, right? But the magnification tells us that chances are you fell backwards on the table. Mm -hmm. Assume, mm -hmm. Like I said, assuming all the constraints are intact. Yep. Okay. Because you do have situations where you'll have like this one outlier measure, like everything matches. And then you see this like crazy kind of like an external rotation that'll show up like the cricket bowlers, baseball pitchers and stuff like that. They have a lot of rollback on the table. Like they, they all roll back on the table, which gives them a truly magnified ER representation. They get twists and bones that magnify the ER. So there's a lot of stuff that you kind of need to know under those circumstances, but typically Typically what you're looking at here is you're looking at a layback on the table. The layback is actually more in this situation on the, uh, uh, you're going to see more of the right-sided, correct? We saw more on the right. Yeah. We saw more on the right than we did on the, on the left because when, when you're laying on the table, the left side of your body is probably not touching the table. Okay. Relative to the right side. Yep. Yep. So you're kind of, you're kind of measuring like this. Uh-huh. Okay. Get it? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. So it's, um, sneaky. it's sneaky, but, but if you, if you understand, if you understand what the possibilities are, then it helps yep. you figure out your chess boards. Right. Okay. Yeah. As I say, all measurements are dirty, which means that the whole body, the whole body is represented in each of your measures. So let me give you another, for instance. So when you look at, um, when you look at the shoulder internal rotation measure um, on the left side, right? Which you got a pretty decent measure there compared to what your left hip was representing, right? So the left hip IR is only like five and you get 60 IR on the, in the shoulder and you go, what the heck's going on there? Mm -hmm. Well, if you're laying on the table and you're twisted this way, guess what? My neck is turning this way, right? My lower cervical yep. spine is going this way. That's going to magnify your internal rotation measurement of your shoulder because you're mm -hmm. not measuring just shoulder motion. You're measuring internal rotation, mm -hmm. right? And, and so if that spine's turning away, that magnifies your internal rotation. Measurement. Okay. So again, that's, how, that's how you identify these things. And it's a, um, the, the hip is an easier, um, it's more of a true representation because it's harder to cheat. What's heavier? Yeah. So always remember that you're measuring in reference to the table. It's like, like the arm really doesn't weigh as much as the leg does. And so yeah. the chance, the chance, if, so if you had like a, 
like a, a big gigantic arm on one side and a normal size arm on the other side, right? Chances mm-hmm. are, if you tried to internally rotate it uh, um, with a big giant arm, it wouldn't have turned the spine nearly as much. And so you would have a measurement that would be more representative of a limitation. So again, it's like what's moving as you perform these measures. When you bring the, the, the leg up over the hip, and that pushes the hip into the table, you'll get a truer representation of the limitation of internal rotation. The arm being lighter, everything just kind of turns with it. That's how you yeah. got to discern these things, mm-hmm. right? Okay, whenever you're measuring a limb, you're measuring the entire body moving. If the question mark is, is how much does the hip move? How much does the one side of the pelvis move? How much does the spine move as you're performing these measures? That's how we, that's how we figure this stuff out. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I think so. Um, so with the um, weight shifted forward anteriorly, yes, um, is that um, representative in in a anterior pelvic orientation? Is that well? You 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 have an anterior orientation for sure, based on your on your measures, mm-hmm. right? So your, your, your hippie R measures give you that, that piece of information. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you know that you're forward, the, the lack of IR, the limited straight leg raise, again, that's, that's a push forward. So you're mm-hmm. moving towards a, a later representation of propulsion. So you're, so you're farther forward. You're, you're trying to get past middle, trying to get into a late representation there. That's what mm-hmm. this. Okay. So the first, first step would be to, to bring that back the um yes sir yeah always always if if you take somebody if you take somebody that's on a on an oblique uh, like an on an oblique turn okay and then pushed forward if you try to turn them back to the left all you do is turn everything at the same time because you, you don't have relative movement available to you so you try to push and like i said it, it i always i always talk about you ever you ever move a refrigerator out of a corner. I can imagine. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're not old enough to own your own refrigerator. Is that what you're <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you move, so back in the olden days before you were born, refrigerators didn't have wheels. They were they were just on legs, and so you you have to move one side at a time, kind of a thing, right? And so what we don't want to do is turn people like a refrigerator when we're when we're when we're trying to reestablish movement. So, so you need to bring them back so you can recapture some of the relative motions that are, that should be available in the pelvis itself. So now we want relative motion in the pelvis. Then we have actually the capacity to make a turn until then you don't, you're just, and, I, and I'll know that when I have the ERs, um, normalized. Yeah, so, so, so think about the, think about the ones, all the, all the measures that are representative of that, of that push forward need to improve, right? So the straight leg raise should improve. The straight leg raise should improve. Early hip flexion should improve. IR should improve. ER should improve. Okay. Yeah. That's how you know. That's how you know. Okay. All right. We are unfortunately out of time, my friend, but this is great. Actually, so your question is going to help a lot of people because I I think they're, they're really good representation of how these things get layered on. So, so thank you very much for your question. Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Have a great day. That, which is a lumbar compensation that allows him to descend very comfortably, in fact, into a deep squat, but probably not the strategy that we would be looking for. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. 
Uh, we got to get rolling, so let's dig straight into today's Q&A. I had a couple questions that came in through email. Um, very similar, but actually kind of a, a, um, on opposite ends of the spectrum. One question was, why, why do some of my, my clients' um, squats look like deadlifts? And the other one was, like, why do some of my clients' deadlifts look like squats? And a lot of times I think what we're just looking at is, is a purely structural bias. And so we can actually go to our foundational archetypes under these situations. And so if we look at the two archetypes and keep in mind, plastic model, not reality, but close enough for rock and roll. So uh, if we looked at our narrow ISA bias, we're gonna have this inhaled representation um, in the axial skeleton. So from a pelvic perspective, we're gonna see that narrowing of the of the infrapubic angle, we see counter-nutation here. And this is somebody that has a, a pelvic outlet that can descend. And so this would be somebody that would bias towards the, a, a deeper squatting capability just by, by physical structure. That eccentric orientation allows them to descend straight down between their feet and keep their center of gravity over their feet. Whereas if I had somebody that was biased towards an exhaled strategy, which would be anomalous that are, that are IR, I have a nutated uh, sacrum under these circumstances and have a concentric orientation of, of that pelvic outlet. This is somebody that's going to have trouble descending into that space, but because the expansion is more posterior, they're going to be those people that are going to be better deadlifters. So um, if we would refer to that as, as a hinging motion, you would see a better hinge under those circumstances. So just by pure structural bias, you're going to see these these deviations where your narrow ISAs are gonna to tend to be better squatters. They're not gonna be great kettlebell swingers. They're not gonna be great deadlifters. Um, whereas when, with your wide ISAs, much better deadlifters. They're gonna be like your, your squat to parallel kind of a guy that might be very, very capable when it comes to heavier loads because they have a much higher internal pressure capability. Um, and they have that constant orientation of the pelvic diaphragm that's gonna allow them to lift more weight. So again, we're looking at we're looking at some structural biases. What about those situations where you say, well, but Bill, I have a wide ISA and he can squat really, really deep. So in many of those cases, all they need to do is create some form of compensatory strategy that produces enough external rotation to allow them to descend. And so what you might see is, is compensations through the extremities. So I have a wider stance, I'll toe out to create that ER space to allow me to descend and that can produce the internal rotation at the bottom of the squat. So you'll see that in a lot of accomplished Olympic lifters, or you might see a compensatory strategy that looks like that, which is a lumbar compensation that allows him to descend very comfortably, in fact, into, into a deep squat, but probably not the strategy that we would be looking for. On the other end of the spectrum, if I'm a narrow ISA that, that should be capable of deep squatting based on, on pure structure, if I superimpose enough superficial strategies on top of that, that axial skeleton, I'm going to create a, a higher pressure situation that will prevent me from accessing external rotation that I'm going to need to descend in the squat. So it will look something like that, where you will see them sort of hit that hard stop just above parallel where they can no longer descend the, the pelvic diaphragm. They can no longer expand ADP that they would need to get into the deep squat. So um, I'm gonna cut to a couple of clips that we did recently on actually the, the Coffee and Coaches Conference calls where we talked a little bit about, about this concept in regards to the more vertical helical angles that we'll see on, on narrow ISAs and why they been, might be more capable or um, why we might see somebody that would be biased towards being more effective deadlifter than a squatter. So 
um, those clips will, will come in handy for you. If you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding Tuesday. I'll see you tomorrow. If, if they were of, of a more flat representation, how would that look in the hip hinge? Uh, it'd be a lousy hip hinge because they wouldn't have any space to uh, uh, to orient the pelvis forward because it, like in, in a true deadlift, pull from the floor, um, you're, you're gonna create an orientation of the pelvis, right? So I'm using a middle propulsive representation of the pelvis in an ideal circumstance because it's gonna be a high pressure propulsive type of an action, right? And so if I, if I have somebody that, that is on a, on a flatter term because their helical angle is more vertical, so a narrow or ISA, they're just not very good hingers because they don't have the ability to create the eccentric orientation um, that's coming off of the apex of the sacrum because I need that space. I need, a, I need a, a nutated sacrum to do a great hinge, right? To do a deadlift or whatever it might be right? Anything that's in any true middle propulsive representation, that's the IR representation. But if I have a bias towards ER, I'm not very good at hinging, right? So these are the people that struggle with things like kettlebell swings, deadlifts, RDLs, single leg stuff, where that's very middle propulsive, right? Got it. And so, so then your goal there is, if, if that's the goal is to, is to try to capture that, then, you know, they might not be changeable enough to be great at it. So okay. be careful with your selection, right? Yes, yes. Okay. But yeah, you just got to get them, you got to get them the IR representation to the best of their ability. And then hopefully they can improve. Some people are very adaptable and they can go through all, all they can go early, middle, lay, and then. Again, some people are just going to be biased in one direction or the other. So your, you know, your your wides will not be the best squatters. Your narrows will not be the best deadlifters. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah that's why it's useful to have a, a, a larger repertoire of activities where, you know, one person will be great at a barbell deadlift, another person will be terrible at a barbell deadlift. But then you put them in a, you give them a trap bar and it starts to look a whole lot better because it's a little bit more squatty than, than deadlifty, right? Yep. There you go. As I descend farther into the squat, I'm going to go through a, a, a space where I have to increase the amount of internal rotation bias. So the pelvis actually changes shape to get through that middle range, okay? So, so it moves towards what would look like an exhaled position of the pelvis. So the inhaled position of the pelvis is at the top. That's an external rotation bias. As I go through the middle range, I have to capture an external, rot or I'm sorry, an exhale bias, which is internal rotation. So the pelvis changes shape and the femur could maintain its position, but the, but the the overall representation of the pelvis and the femur at that point in time is internal rotation. As I descend farther, I have to re-expand and I have to go back towards my external rotation bias at the bottom of a squat. Okay. Now, how many times you ever seen a perfect squat? Almost never, right? because most people can't assume the, the ideal shape to pass through 
those ranges and capture the full position because they don't have full adaptability. And a lot of that's just based on structure. So now we can go all the way back to what's your bias? Are you, are you a wide ISA guy or a narrow ISA guy? right? That would bias you towards one end of the spectrum. So if I'm a narrow, I'm really good at the top and the bottom of the squat. If I'm, an, if I'm a wide, I'm really good in that middle part of the squat, generally speaking. Okay. Bill, can I ask a question on that? Absolutely not. Okay. I was on a roll, dude. You interrupted my train. No, go ahead. Of course you can. Um, is this why if you watch a I watch a lot of powerlifter squat just repetitively over time. And yeah. once you see they hit certain areas, they either have like a hip hinge or something goes wonky. <clears throat> yeah. They're out of room. Shape. They're out of yeah. room. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so here you go. So let's just say that you can't expand posteriorly. Okay. Knowing full well that to initiate the squat, and move through a, an external rotation bias or to hit the bottom of a squat, which is an external rotation bias. And I can't do that. So I'm initiating the squat more towards my internal rotation bias, right? And so it's gonna look, for lack of a better explanation, hingy. It's gonna look more like my deadlift than it is my Olympic weightlifter is sitting down at the bottom of his squat, right? Because that, and, and again, it could be physical structure. It could be the training strategies that you've been using that, that don't allow a shape change to occur that allows you to access that motion. So again, you can diagnose. I've been doing this a lot lately. I got to stop that. <clears throat> so you can diagnose a squat or, or, or what people can and can't do you know, based on the on, on that shape as they move through the squat. So when I see somebody that's got this really, really hingy squat, they've got what, what would be termed a really strong lordosis as they're trying to squat, that's a pelvis that is compressed on the backside and anteriorly oriented. Very, very useful, very useful for producing force, very useful for stopping motion from occurring. So again, let, let's use Joseph's powerlifter as an example. So as they try to squat, they don't want to squat too deep, right? They want to stop the motion at a very specific point where they just get far enough down towards the ground where they get a, they get a pass from the judge. I did it again. Somebody slapped my wrist. Um, where, they, where they pass their, their lift, right? So they get their white lights so they can say, oh, it was a good squat or it was not a good squat, right? And so then that becomes useful under those circumstances, but it doesn't make it better than something else. It just means that it is a variation. So when you see someone's knees <coughs> deviate, when they put, one sec. When you see someone's knees deviate early in a squat, And, and people say you're externally rotating, what they're doing is they're moving their knees apart because at that point in time, the, the shape of their body does not allow them to access external rotation straight ahead because it's out here. External rotation is out there. That's where they find it based on their physical structure or based on the context of the lift or, or the, the performance of the movement. That's why external rotation is a space that is around you based on the shape of your body. Because I can, I can turn my head a little bit.
and it looks like I'm going straight ahead. I can make sure my feet are going in that same direction as my face, but everything else is facing this way. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, so it is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday, as usual, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Um, please join us for these calls. You, you see that I show these segments of, of the uh, coffee calls here for the Q&As because these, these calls are really, really good. Um, we usually go a couple hours. Great people, great questions. Um, please join us, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The link will be on my professional Facebook page just prior to the call. All right, today's Q&A comes from a segment from the Coffee and Coaches Conference call, and this was with Colin, and Colin had a question in regards to uh, the right oblique orientation also had a request yesterday that came through uh, Instagram that, that requested that we talk a little bit about the right oblique. So this is one of these representations that are, I don't want to say that it's simple, but it, it is certainly less complex than many situations. So early on in the right oblique orientation, we have preservation of, of internal rotations. And so it makes addressing adaptability. So there's your right oblique right there. And so again, early on, when we don't have this, this anterior center of gravity shift, we, we don't lose internal rotations. So uh, a lot of times uh, you'll see people just following the orientation of the sacrum in regards to their movement. And in those cases, all we gotta do is push them right back on the oblique axis in the opposing direction, which would be back into the left. And so uh, this is one of those situations because we were talking about a hinging motion most specifically. But we'll break it down as to, to how you identify these things and then a couple of strategies in the, in the call itself. So it will be useful for many, I think. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and put 15-minute consultation in the subject line. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Um, tomorrow, uh, at, tomorrow evening is Intensive 14, by the way, so very excited about that. Um, intensive 15 has not been set yet. Got some stuff to do before we figure that out, but we will do that um, very, very soon. So make sure you get on the uh, mentorship email list. And I will see you all tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., Coffee and Coaches Conference Call. More of like the left advancing presentation versus like the right oblique presentation. My okay. current like heuristic understanding of identifying it is typically individuals who are on the right oblique will have that drop off and like right hip external rotation relative to left. And right. I identified that as like the right side being more anterior than the left side. But then something that Christian said was that the left pushes forward in front of the right. And that set me for a mental loop. Um, so hang on, hang on. <laughs> okay. It's, let me show you. Please. You see me? Yes. Okay. Right oblique. Okay. Okay. Where's yep. straight ahead? Where is straight ahead now? Over here. Yep. And so they go like that. Uh, so it's an absolute orientation and not a relative motion. They're just following, they're just, they're just following the, the, the sacrum, right? So the sacrum is now over here and they get, so, so there's straight ahead. They're just going straight ahead. Uh, okay. You see it? Yep. So, so this doesn't change. They're just, they're just literally like if I, if I sit in my chair and I face this way, that's all they're doing. So they get, they get turned right and then they get shoved right forward. 
Well, if 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 you're asking them, if you're asking them to to not move the axial skeleton in a relative manner, right? That's what he was asking them to do, right? Because he was saying, I don't know, he said they were doing a hinging motion, right? right. So so if 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 my axial skeleton is actually facing that way now. Yeah. Okay. okay. So it looks like it's going this way, but it's going that way, right? Because I can I can turn my head a little bit and it looks like I'm going straight ahead. I can make sure my feet are going in that same direction as my face, but everything else is facing this way. Which is not all they're, doing, all they're doing, all they're doing is is like literally they're they're doing exactly what he's asking them to do. It's just that the orientation is taking them over there. So that's a case where you want to push back to the left. Yes. First to address yeah. the orientation of that whole thing kind of facing I'm, the I'm pushing I'm pushing back into the left with my with my right foot because all I have to do is is create a reorientation under that circumstance. I okay. don't have I don't have anything crazy added on as far as like the anterior center of gravity shift. Yeah. Yeah. No that 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 makes sense because I had a dude come in um a client come in yesterday and he's like a local strength coach but he like kind of presented as like what I thought I'm like the right oblique because he was dropping off like real sticky right hip ER, left hip ER was like like 15 degrees more, but like the end feel was just different, right? And I forget what was going on with his IRs, but I also know he was short maybe like 15 degrees of hip extension on each side, maybe like a little bit more on the right than the left. But I just did like a left whole foot elevated, or rather like a left heel elevated, but like the whole foot was on like a slant board, right? And pushed him back and over to the left with like a little bit of weight. And yeah, like, it's like an offset squat. Hip extension came back, ER came back. Nice. Improved. I was like, wow. Yeah. Cool. I like I like those days because you seem really, really smart. You know? Yeah, and, then, and then there's days where I try everything and like nothing works. I'm like, that's what this scar is for right here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is where this is where I bleed on the way home. Yeah. Okay. Hanging your head into the steering wheel. Hanging my head into the steering wheel every day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Some days. Some days you, you get those presentations that don't have a lot of stuff added on. It's very rare uh, in my world. Um, so I give you, for instance, like I had a patient that came in yesterday and it's like, so you ask him like, okay, when did this start? And he goes, 1983. That's a long time. Yeah. You know, it's not like um, a guy said, oh, two weeks ago I was deadlifting and I tweaked my back. It's like, those, those are the guys that are pretty easy to work with. It's like 1983, I was a junior in high school in 1983, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, it's been right. a long time. So, um, but yeah, it's like, it's like you did, you did the exact correct thing because again, the representation that you had, it, it he wasn't an end game representation. All you needed to do is make sure he went back on the, on the, the literally the opposing direction and you immediately get the change. The nice thing is it's a, it's usually a very simple kind of a representation. It's like, Oh, I just need to move you back on that, that, that foot. They yeah. do that little offset squatty thing, and it's like, and they go, "That's all I need to do." And you go, "Yeah." It's like, what are we going to do with the 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 rest of the appointment? Well, we can just you know socialize if you want. That's exactly how it went. I was like, "Well, you've been here for twenty minutes. We have another forty to go." <laughs> yeah. um, there you go. Cool. When yeah. so when you do have someone like, for example, I've been working with Artem because I work with Artem on some stuff like related to like my right hip, and when I, I started, my Artem? yeah, okay. When I started, I was like an end game wide because I had real poo straight leg raise on each side, like 45 and maybe like less on my right. Right. 
and no hip IRs, worse on the right than the left, a bunch of hip ER, right? Yeah. yeah. So we pulled me back first um, using like some downhill skier activities, right? To, to promote some like posterior lower yielding, right? To just, yeah. just give me more space to move into. Yeah. And, like banded zerger breathing. I, I, I have a history of like CrossFit powerlifting. So I just squeeze the crap out of everything, right? Sure. Um, and then we finally got to a point where I had like enough hip abduction that he knew he had pulled me back enough. Uh-huh. And then we started doing like a left side lying right propulsion mm-hmm. to orient me over towards the left. So with okay, an example, that's going to square you. That's going to square you. Yeah. Okay. It's not going to get you left, but it's going to get you going in that direction for sure. So now I have like 20 degrees of left hip IR and my mm-hmm. ERs are pretty good on each side, probably like uh-huh high 50s maybe even like 60s each right but my right hip ir is still like pinchy and not good right uh-huh. yeah so i'm trying to understand conceptually what's going on with me because i see a lot of me with the population that i work with because i gravitate towards working with lifters and my yeah. lifters who are really strong tend yeah. to be wider right yeah. and tend to present yeah. like me right you still have an orientation okay you still have an orientation okay right. You got you, you still got it. You still got, you got a little bit of work to do to, to bring the, uh, the, the right side back. That's okay. what I was going to ask. I, I need to keep delaying the right side, right? Yeah. You got to pull it back. It's, it's still, it's still too far forward. That's, that's what you're bumping into. So right foot on wall cross connect. Oh, I don't care how you do it. I don't care how you do it. I want you to understand the premise about what you need to do. That was what the other question was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. But, it, but again, you understand what I'm saying, right? As far as wh- where you need to go with this thing. Right? Yeah. I still have to delay the right side. Yeah. It, it's it's yeah. still forward and that's why I've lost the IR. Yeah. So, so you, yeah. So you just got to create that, that, that first representation of, of uh, uh, you have to create the ER space on that side. Still, you don't have, you don't have a full ER space. You're, you've got more because you because you've got a space to turn into. Yeah, that's your twenty degrees of, of hip IR. So that's how much turn you have. So you're about a halfway there when you think about it, right? Um, yeah. So you're so you're you're going in the right direction. But what I would say is is I would I would still be trying to go back on the right first. Yeah. Right, and then because because you're what you should see, what you should see. When you get to a left side lying right propulsive activity is you should pick up a lot of IR on the left side. If you don't, you're still oriented. I think for me, starting from like zero IR on the left hip and like being nice to myself, negative five in the right, going to 20, I think is maybe like a representative of like picking up a substantial amount. Oh, it's, it's, it is. But what I'm saying is, it's like, so think about where you are in that representation of left side lying, right propulsion. Mm -hmm. That's peak IR representation. So unless you only have 20 available to you for the rest of your life because of your, your structure. Yeah. Right. Maybe that is all you have. I don't know. I'm not working with you. I have no idea. my, My point is, it's like that, that would represent like the peak moment of IR. Right. Because you're pushing on the left side. Yes. Because I'm pushing the right sacral base forward to square to the front. Square to the front is going to be mid propulsion. 
it's going to be mm. making impulsion. So, uh. so again, you should see peak IR show up. If it doesn't, like I said, it, it's not a bad thing. It just tells you, it's like, oh, I still have an orientation going on here. That's why I didn't pick up more IR. Right. So when you're pushing into the wall with your right foot, you're orienting your whole pelvis. Like, like you, you hit a, a point where you've maxed out your IR and then the remainder of that activity becomes orientation. So, so I would look at, I would look at bringing yourself back more on the right and then look at the, look at the position that you're in, in that right propulsive strategy. So, so my guess is here you go. You get your foot too high on the wall. Probably. Yeah. Okay. So if the foot's too high on the wall, guess what you did? You oriented the pelvis. Which would make sense if I'm more translated forward on the right side because you're going to have less abduction available to me. So if I max that out, I'm losing all my room to move into and then I turn like a bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You, you took it all away. So you don't have it. You don't have any turning space. Right. So you need more turning space first, then go to your left propulsive activity, but don't, don't it's like higher is not better. No. Okay. Because that jams you, it, it literally stops you from creating the, the relative motion to get your sacrum square. It's going to keep you in a late representation and, and you'll never get the IR back. You'll, you'll just keep jamming yourself into an ER orientation. Do you understand? Do, do you see it? I think when we have our call, all you gotta do is all you gotta do is raise somebody's leg up to the side, and then okay, what people would look at and they go, oh, if I raise your leg up to the side, you side bend. It's not a side bend. That's an IR compensation. It's an IR compensation because you move somebody so far into ER where they don't have any, they don't have any space, and so they had to orient the pelvis away from the leg, right? Mm -hmm. And the only way that they can move away from the leg is to create an IR compensatory strategy above the pelvis in the spine. You see it? Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's like, it's like you're on the right track. Okay. But yeah. what I would do is be a little bit more patient, capture some more ER, and then make sure that when you're trying to recapture the IR, that your representation at the pelvis is appropriate. Cause I'm, I'm guessing you're overshooting your capabilities. Therefore you're sticking yourself right back into a late representation. Classic me. Okay. You're just trying too hard. I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to punch you once every second for the next 35 seconds. Okay. That is not variable. Seven components of force variability. Is that what you're asking me? Yeah. And the effect on connective tissue. Okay, cool. Um, we've actually talked about this. I think Manuel, Manuel asked the question about variability, I think a while back. And, um, so do you understand what variability is first and foremost, as far as, is, is it being applied to the, to the movement? Uh, I mean, I would assume it's just the way that the other components of force change uh, over okay. time. Okay. Right. Okay. So I'm going to punch you in the face. I'm going to punch you once every second for the next 35 seconds. Okay. That is not variable. Right. Okay. Right, I'm hitting right, you right. at the same rate, same pace. Everything is the same. So it's boom, boom, boom. Okay. And then, then I'm going to change it. And now I'm going to make it like 
a combination of threes, a one, a one, two, a one, two, a one, two, five. Okay. Mm -hmm. You get it. Okay. So one is, one is, one has a, a very specific frequency and one is variable. Okay. So far so good. Right. Right. Okay. All right. Then let's look at it from a connective tissue standpoint. So I'm going to take a piece of connective tissue and I'm going to do that. So this is you getting punched in the face once every second for 35 seconds. Okay. And so there's a very specific uh, uh, expansion and release, right, of that connective tissue, right? So it's going to elongate to a certain degree, and then it's going to uh, recompress to a certain degree. You follow so far? Okay. If I pull it long, it stores a certain amount of energy, and then I let it release, and it releases a certain amount of energy. Okay. And it's not perfect because we have heat that, that is released when we stretch and release connective tissue energy. Okay. But, but let's just say um, for the sake of argument that, that whatever degree I stretch it, I release the same amount of energy. Okay. All right. So if I stretch it to this length every time, and then it, as I start to release it, and I pull on it again before it releases all of its energy. It's in a different representation of stiffness and capacity of energy storage and the ability to release energy. So okay. if I pull it long and I only release this much and I pull it again and then I release all of it and then I pull it long again and I release all of it and I pull it long again, I only release part of it and I pull it long again, the tissue behaves differently, okay? So if you, if you jump over a hurdle, and you stick the landing and you allow all the force to dissipate, it's different than if I jump over the, the hurdle, land and immediately jump again. So, so the, the right. behavior right. of the tissue changes based on the rate of loading. So remember all components of force are always in play. Right. Okay. We separate right. them out so we can, so we can distinguish the, the influence of, of those qualities. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so basically what you're doing is you're creating a state of connective tissue behavior that is either similar to something that somebody might have to do as an athlete, or I'm trying to get the tissue to behave in a certain way. So let's just say that I have somebody that is very, very stiff and I wanna make them less stiff, all right? So do I want them to, bounce across the ground very quickly. See, okay, so you're catching on already. You understand, it's like, it's like you're not releasing all the energy. So I'm not getting the full, I'm not getting this full excursion of connective tissues. So, so therefore they're kind of staying in this, this small range of excursion that may not buy me the, the yielding action that I would want if I'm trying to, to translate somebody from a very, very stiff, like take a power lifter and try to make him into a basketball player. It won't work, but point being, you understand what I'm getting at. So, so what we wanna do when we're thinking about variability is like, okay, what is this person going to need to be exposed to, right? In their sport, it, do I have a variable representation of different connective tissue behaviors? So I need to recognize that. And then the activities that I choose in preparing them for their sport should probably include that type of a behavior. So if, if they need variability, do you ever see the, uh, 
there's a great, I can't think of his name now. He's a shot putter and he's doing like a whole bunch of explosive stuff. And he does like Werner Gunther. Uh, say, say it again. War- Werner Gunther. Yes. There you go. Thank you. Um, He's doing a whole bunch of different, like he does a jump sequence that is just ridiculous. Like he should get, he should have gotten a gold medal for just doing the jump sequence. Cause it was so cool to see. He does like uh he does like barbell side split squats. And then he does a series of like hurdle jumps and then he just keeps going. And then he jumps up a whole bunch mm-hmm. of bleachers. It was, it's just really cool to watch a, a gigantic human being do this. He's, he's like a, a really big dude, but, but that is a variable representation yeah. Where, where like the heights are different, the demands are different. So if I jump up on a box, right, I don't have the full yielding action of, of, the, of the connective tissues, right? And so I keep going up and up and up. So there's a different degree of stiffness than if I'm jumping over a high hurdle, jumping over a high hurdle, because the amount of time that for the, for the tissues to release is different, Okay. So again, that's, so that's looking at it from a performance aspect. It's like, okay, I want to, I want to influence this connective tissue. So it behaves appropriately during performance on the other end of the spectrum. If I have somebody that, that has a, a movement based problem, like in, in, in my world, in the purple room, I can use, I can use the, the variability to create the, the degree of stiffness or the degree of yielding action that they may need um, in a dynamic sense. So once we get to the point where they, where they can have some element of control, now I take them out into the gym, okay? And, and now I can pay attention to rate. So if I need somebody that, that behaves a little bit stiffer, I might use some sort of preloading of the connective tissues, right? So, so that they yield and as they start to release, they're, they're becoming stiffer and then I hit it again, right? And, and so now they have a, a normal representation of the, the energy storage and release of connective tissues um, that will protect them. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, so, could, you, could you give a quick example of what you just described? Uh, take a box squat. Yeah. Okay, um, take a box squat. And if you do a full load on a box squat, you're gonna yield more than if you did a touch and go. Okay, so if I want somebody's connective tissues to behave more stiff, more stiffly, stiffer, more stiffer, more stiff. I don't know. It's early. Uh, if, I, if I want stiffer connective tissue behavior, right? So what I might do is I might say, okay, deload to the box first and then spend less time on the box and then less time on the box and then touch and go. And then, and you see what I'm getting at? Okay. Right. Um, you can also do this where you would do like um, uh, maybe a jump up to another box where you would start them on just a simple box squat, deload, less time on the box, touch and go, and then jump, right? So I'm sort of ramping up the stiffness, if you will, right? Versus somebody that's going from like a full yielding action that might be what we would deem um, less than ideal. So somebody that might like a, a tall, slender volleyball player that that might have a lot of eccentric orientation, a lot of yielding capabilities, but not a lot of turnaround. So, so the vertical jump is, is a little bit lower than you would like it to be. And so again, you transition them into a faster and faster loading representation. So the tissue becomes stiffer and then you turn that into the more explosive activity. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, the, the seven components of force, it's just, 
it's it's like if I were to observe somebody doing an activity over a certain period of time, it's like I would need if I really want a representation of what's going on, I need to have all of those just in my head, like like not necessarily like mulling over them like crazy. Um, but like if I wanted to just write it all down, um, yeah. it, it's it's like you just have to you have to think about each and every one of those. And then variability isn't really it's like in seems like it's 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 largely like an interplay of a lot of the factors because um of a lot of the other six components um you could you can definitely look at that perspective or you could look at it from one perspective and change the variability so so variability of load okay yeah, okay so if i used a weight releaser you know what a, a weight releaser is yeah okay so if I so I I, I do the, the lowering phase in a in a heavy squat with a weight releaser, right? And I release the weight at the bottom, I immediately change the loading on the connective tissues, and I get this really cool spring back from the connective tissues from that type of a of a load and release. So that's variability there within one single repetition. Right. So again, it's it's the, the the important thing to understand is number one, I need to have an intent, and then then you can construct the activity to to meet those specific needs. So we could look at variability in in regards to direction. So if I'm training a hundred meter sprinter, the amount of lateral agility activities that he needs to perform is uh, slim, right? Okay, because we want to keep him on a straight line. And so compare him to a soccer player. And so, again, you look at constructing variability from, from direction. I got variability of force. I have variability of load, right? Right. And so, again, okay. it's, it's looking at the behavior that, that you want as the outcome, understanding enough about the person that you're, that you're looking at. And like I said, then you can kind of construct the activities. Now, let me, let me caution you that... Um, some of these activities are rather intensive. And so you still need to construct an adaptation to get them to wherever their, their end result or, or ideal outcome would be. So don't, don't rush the process because connective tissues um, will rebel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. Very helpful. Thank you. You're welcome, sir. That was a good question. You might be the highlight of their day. Good morning, happy Friday. I have neuro coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right, a very busy Friday. This is intensive day two, um, the unlearning day, if you will, for those of you playing the home game. Um, so we're gonna dig in today's Q&A and this is a really cool video. Um, the, it, there's going to be about six people that are going to really, really enjoy this one probably, but but I, I thought it was a really important topic. Um, Jordan is a student. He's about to go into work in, a, in an extended care facility. And so this is a, a, a difficult population, challenging population to work with uh, because the adaptability windows tend to be rather small. There's risk of falls. And so Jordan's question revolved around that. It's like, how do, you, how do we work with these people that, that might be a fall risk that do have smaller windows of adaptability? And so we went through um, some approaches that, that I prefer um, having some experience working in the extended care facilities. 
that is a little bit more enjoyable um, for the client and um, as, as well as the, the therapist in question. Um, so again, I think if you're a student, you're going into a clinical rotation, this is gonna be really, really helpful. If it's a population that you do work with and you're, you're sort of reaching some barriers, this might give you some ideas as to how to make some progress with, with those folks that just seem like they don't really have again, the window of opportunity to make some progress. So this is not like the typical video that we would do where we're talking about higher levels of performance, working with athletes, um, et cetera. But again, I think an underserved population, a very important topic to be discussed. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15 minute consultation, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15 minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding weekend. Um, because of the intensive, the uh, podcast will probably be up in the afternoon on Sunday. Um, so be looking for that. Don't forget to go to the YouTube channel and subscribe so you can get all of these videos um, at will. And then I will see you guys next week. Here. Um so I was wondering, um, my questions in regards, it might've been answered actually with your response to Andrew's question, but um, way back you made a post about older fall risk or geriatrics and doing a lot of expansive type of exercises. So like kind of like marching and then sit to stand and rolling and that sort of stuff. Yeah. And my thought process, when I associate fall risk people, I also associate them with like a lot of comorbidities, but like osteopathic degeneration or osteoporosis and that sort of stuff. My question is, I think like when I think of changes that I'm trying to get physiologically for like osteopathic changes, I think more like compressive stuff, like under load. Um, if that's my goal specifically, like if they have like osteoporosis or something, is that, but they're also a fall risk. Is there one that you might prioritize over the other Slash, do they go hand in hand or can they? Well, you've got limit. So we're talking about an elderly population, right? Yeah. Okay. So, so you got to understand it's like, okay, how much shape change do you have available to you by constraint? Right. Okay. Um, and so that becomes, that becomes a, an element of, of limitation. Um, but they, it doesn't mean that they don't have any, it just means that it's, it's just a, to a smaller degree. That's why, that's why I like getting like, when I, when I used to work in the nursing homes, I, I, I demanded that I had a big mat table so I could roll people around, right. And get the shape changes that way first, but there's always going to be limitations. I mean, I, and to use a, probably a little bit of a harsh term, they're, they're kind of brittle. Right. right? Do you find, I was going to say, do you find it difficult using a table yes. at first for a lot of them. It's, it's difficult period, because right. again, you're, you're, you're battling a, a relatively unchangeable constraint. You have a small window of adaptability that's available to you. Right. But that doesn't mean you don't, you don't try to work on that because again, as you're rolling them, you're teaching them what, whatever shape that they can assume you're teaching them how to feel internal changes in, in position, right? So if I roll you, your guts roll with you, and you might not be totally aware of that fact, but your brain knows, right? Your brain feels those, those shifts. And so that's, that's how you teach people how to weight shift first. Like you don't stand them up in the parallel bars yeah. and you, and yeah, ugh. <laughs> yeah. No, you teach them, you teach them in this, in this simple, easy way where they're really, really safe. Right. And then you, 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 you know, bring them up. Right. 
Um, but but again, it's like you're, you're just you're you're battling a, a certain limitation of of shape change, but continue to 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 work on that within whatever tolerance that they they have. Um, when you're talking about like fall risks and things like that, um, you can still use load. You can still use asymmetrical loads. Um, you can still use different foot positions and things like that and take the same thing that you were working on, on the mat table and just stand it up. Cause again, it's all turns, right? right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and again, you're in a, you're in a tough, you're in a tough, you know, situation because like I said, the, this, you just have a limited adaptability, but, but you gotta, you gotta create the windows that, mm -hmm. that you can just recognize they're going to be really small windows. For sure. Do you ever have an, uh, any issues with people that have had previous falls and they're just really uncomfortable just being on the ground? They're scared. Yeah. Right. Do you, yeah. I don't know. Do you have any neat trick to be like, don't worry, it's safe. Cause it's hard. To, I feel like it's just very hard to convince someone in that population. Hey, I need you, maybe not on the ground, but Hey, I need you to get on the table where right. you were injured last. Yeah. Um, so the, again, the mat table is, is, a, a lot less scary than getting down on the floor. Again, it would be rare that you'd put a you know nursing home client on the floor. Hopefully not. <laughs> well, th that, but but see, one of the things that I want those people to be able to do, if it's possible, again, we're we're talking about depending on age and such and what their what their actual mobility is, is I want them to be able to to crawl, right. So they can, if they do fall, that they can get to a quadruped position and then they can get to something that can help them get up. Um, and sometimes if you can just get them rolling, great. If you can't, then you got to get limbs to move. If you can create, you know, like cross connect representations, there's some of your turns that will give them some measure of power output. So when you look at uh, uh, the, the people that like to take a dive in the nursing home, it's like they know they're falling. They just can't move fast enough to protect themselves anymore. Mm. And so that's what you're going to try to recreate. Okay. Um, are you working in a nursing home right now by any chance? Will be. Okay. Um, <clears throat> uh, ladies like to dance. Okay. And, and if you want to practice weight shifting, find out what their favorite music is and dance. That way you don't have to do boring, stupid stuff, right? And they, they, they get their weight shifts in. Guys think like Tai Chi, okay? All of this is it's slow, it's methodical, it's rhythmic, it's weight shifts, et cetera. Right. So you do their little warm up. You do the warm up on the mat table. They do the rolling. They do some reaching. They do some some shifty shift stuff. Right. You can do some sit to stand work. So you got your box squats. Right. And then you do your lunge patterns. But the lunge patterns are dance or they're Tai Chi. Get it. So simple. <laughs> yeah. It, it saves a lot of time instead of doing like straight leg raises in four planes and whatever it is that they teach you in school. Right. Yeah. Yeah, this becomes kind of useful, but 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 again, construct it in a safe in a safe position first. Laying down tends to be safe. 
a lot of people don't mind laying on their back. They can roll from shoulder to shoulder. That's, that's part of the rolling. That's a weight shift. You put them on their side, they roll, they roll, they roll. They can reach on top of that. They can step over themselves as they're laying on their sides, right? So you're, you're creating all of this, this generalized representation of turning. You get them up into a seated position. You can do like an offset stance for a for a sit to stand in, in both directions. So now I'm promoting turns. And then, like I said, you get them up on their feet and you do something that challenges them to have to step, shift their weight so they can, they can create those sensations. And it's more fun for you because there's nothing worse, nothing worse than drag therapy. You know what that is, right? That like ball squeezes and like- No, drag therapy is where- Okay, Greta, we're going to get you up and we're going to walk with your walker down the <laughs> hall and you drag them down the hall, right? Because that's exercise. It's more fun. It's more fun to make it a party in that atmosphere. Those people don't have any fun. Okay. Help them enjoy themselves. It's a miserable existence. You might be the highlight of their day. You might be the only person that actually talks to them. You know, it's a tough, it's a tough situation to be in for, for everybody. Make it fun. If it's fun for you, it'll be fun for them. Okay. Yeah, for sure. And Thank you. Thank you. My advice to you. I'll go practice my dancing. <laughs>